Then came Pentecost. Well, that's the Greek name for it. For the first century Jewish follower of Yahweh, it has a Thanksgiving holiday type vibe. They offer the first fruits of the wheat harvest 49 to 50 days or seven weeks after the Passover. In Hebrew, it was called the Feast of Weeks. Well, I mean, that's the English translation of the Hebrew. And it was as old as the original giving of the law to Moses. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair the biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, the promised power arrives. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we have a who, a what, and a where. The followers of Jesus, probably the 120, receiving the Holy Spirit of God in Jerusalem. Why? Well, Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit would come to be his followers, helper, truth teacher, indweller, peace giver, forgiver, power, and unifier. Is this spirit a person? Yes and no. When we think of people, we think of one person per being. But Yahweh is three persons in one being. So if you want to know if the Spirit is its own being, no. Their own person? Yes. At least that's my understanding of it. This part of Yahweh has been there since hovering over the waters in Genesis, participated in the filling and empowering different individuals in the Old Testament, such as Bezalel, the craftsman, Joseph in Egypt, Moses and the elders at the tent of meeting, Joshua, son of Nun, King Saul, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Balaam the sorcerer, Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah the prophet, Ezekiel the prophet, Daniel, Micah the prophet. It's a whole list. And then the Spirit was upon Jesus from his baptism forward. Then here in Acts 2, The Spirit of Yahweh has indwelled people with the intention of staying. The Old Testament is filled with examples of people who have the Holy Spirit's power for short bursts of time, but it never remains. Even King David pleaded in the Psalms for the Holy Spirit not to be taken from him. The 120 are little portable temples or tabernacles of Yahweh, and as such, they have been filled with God's Spirit. They bring the ministry of Yahweh and his kingdom to everyone they encounter. The Apostle Paul, who's not yet one of the apostles in our story, will later write that the Holy Spirit is our seal for the day of redemption, that we are the new temples of God, and that the dependent Christian learns to walk in the Spirit. The biblical definition of Christian could be a person indwelled with the Holy Spirit. 
When they receive the spirit of Yahweh, they get a sensory overload. They hear a sound from above like a wind. And then it sounded like it was inside the house. The sound of invisible power. But it sounded like wind rather than it was wind. And then they saw individual tongues of fire rest on each of them. This certainly would have felt like experiencing the Red Sea or Sinai. Then they spoke in different languages. Luke records all three elements of experiences, but he hones in on the speaking. The first act of the Spirit among the people is to give them the ability to speak in foreign languages they do not know. There wasn't a Babel app or Duolingo for them to polish up for the mission real fast. The love of God was for all people everywhere, and this was how it started. And due to the holiday of the Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits, and Pentecost, the city of Jerusalem is full of Jewish people from every region. Many families, if they could afford it, would stay in Jerusalem from Passover to Pentecost. It represented the end of the grain harvest, but also, since the time after the exile, Pentecost was associated with the giving of the Law of Moses on Mount Sinai, because that event was also about 50 days after Passover. It was a big day, carrying a multitude of spiritual meanings. The crowds linger in Jerusalem for this remembrance are the same crowds that called for and witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. Then the darkness, the rumors three days later of a resurrection. It's been a crazy month. Acts 2 verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, the 120 followers of Jesus, including the 70 disciples and the 12 apostles, step outside among the crowds as changed humans, little temples. The Holy Spirit's indwelled them and there are new creations with new hearts, yet in their old bodies. They had been hiding. They had been denying they knew Jesus, but this is no longer the case. And notice the Spirit filled them all from Peter to unnamed follower number 120, equally indwelled. There's such a commotion of sound as the people gather together to hear this message in their own language. They are gathering as God's purpose for this day, for his glory and for their good. The diverse crowds are amazed. Now, the entire world wasn't present. There's hyperbole there in Luke's writing. But what is happening is clearly a reverse Tower of Babel. Where once God had scattered people into tribes according to new tongues, here they're reunited in one message of love from God. Originally, the builders of the tower were trying to coax the gods down from heaven on their own terms. In this Pentecost event, 
The proclamation of God's visitation is given on his own terms. His mighty works are being shared in various languages, demonstrating his love. It's just a regular Pentecost festival day when the crowds overhear the loud arrival of the Spirit of Yahweh and his people. They're speaking in other people's languages and the work of Jesus being proclaimed. Verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They're filled with new wine. (laughs) So they're amazed, they're perplexed, and some people think they're drunk. Peter replies with a monologue. Monologues, sermons, speeches, or public addresses are considered important acts of the disciples in Luke's second volume. He gives space for 19 monologues in total. In this first one from Peter, which we can assume is the historical summary of his speech, he proclaims, starting in verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lift up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." So the monologue, the sermon, whatever you want to call it, starts by answering the drunk allegations, saying it's silly, no one drinks that early. But then Peter jumps immediately into the scriptures as pointing to this day, something that Jesus might have taught him as he showed his followers how the whole of scripture points to him. The passage he cites as being fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit And the speaking in many languages was from Joel chapter 2. He says, this was that, which is a teaching style of Jesus. Uh, Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. This is that. The sons and daughters shall prophesy. This is that. Old men shall dream dreams and young men shall see visions. This is that. Spirit on both male and female. This is that. Wonders in the heaven, blood and fire and smoke. This is that? The sun to darkness, moon to blood. This is that? Joel's apocalyptic descriptions there put it less in the literal sky blood and more in the social and political symbolism that this sort of literature was almost always pointing to. If you're like, no, I need my literal crap. Okay. Well, the sky did go dark at the cross. There was a lunar eclipse of blood moons that Passover season. And Jesus' blood was poured out for all. The disciples saw smoke and fire above their heads. So there you go. 
but it's likely referring to the revolution of freedom from the tyranny of men and sin. Now, Peter changed the beginning and the end of the passage he quoted. Joel wrote, It shall come to pass afterwards. And Peter changed it to, In the last days it shall be, God declares. In this way, Peter emphasizes that today, the last days have begun. He cuts off Joel's conclusion, too, that in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be those who escape. And he transitions straight into the work of Jesus, emphasizing it is no longer Yahweh who shelters his people in Zion, but Jesus who rescues us all. How can Peter get away with this inconsistent interpretation? Number one, he was taught by Jesus. That's it. You only need that one point. If someone tells you that there's a better way to interpret Old Testament prophecy so that you see Nikolai and the Russians, the Great Tribulation, World War III, any political positions, then just know they did not get there from seeing Jesus interpret scripture. They've made their own way. Now, there may be some irony here as well. Pentecost has a festival to celebrate the bounty of the barley harvest. Joel's context was the aftermath of a terribly devastating locust plague. And the disciples are being accused of being drunk. In Joel's context, there was so little wine left in Israel that they can't even offer any to God. Joel says to run to God if you want to escape judgment. Peter says, run to Jesus. Starting in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all those in the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. 
Now notice how Peter describes Jesus. He, he describes his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus, the crucified one, was truly the son of God and you killed him last month. This was God's plan because death cannot end Jesus. Death cannot hold Jesus. This was foretold in the Psalms. The Holy One of God would not see corruption and death. Another thing Jesus likely showed the disciples about himself in Scripture. And David died. You can visit his tomb. Well, they could. The one that you can do now is a fake. But anyway... David foresaw the resurrection of someone else, and the disciples are saying that's who we witnessed, Jesus, walking around and then ascending to the Father, also referring to Psalms, and not about how David did not experience such a thing. Jesus was seated at the right hand and has sent his spirit upon them, and that is what Peter is testifying to. God has made Jesus... Lord and Christ, Messiah. We need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And the name is Jesus. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. See, it's a historical summary of what he said, not the transcript. Luke says that he said much more, and I'm sure he did, but this is the gist. The people want to know how to respond to such a wild proclamation. Peter says they should repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So that's two responses. The result being forgiveness and receiving the Holy Spirit. Is this the result of both of those responses or one? And which one? What does Peter mean by repent? Repent is the Greek word metanosate from metanoa, meaning to change one's mind. Change it to, I need Jesus to purify me from my guilt of rebellion, and I trust that he is able and that he loves me. In English, the word repent often means to feel or express regret or remorse about wrongdoing. We shouldn't impose the English meaning on a Greek word. Peter isn't asking them to be sorry about their sin. That's not the gospel. Being sorry about your sinfulness... And being baptized is not a plan of salvation. It doesn't work. Does sorrow play a part? Yes, the Holy Spirit will use sorrow and use regret that the law provokes to prepare our hearts for the true gospel. Change your mind to trust that God is who he says he is, that he saves, and that you are his now. Change your mind to that in faith. And what about baptism? Well, the audience is Jewish and as such, a highly symbolic people. They use symbols for everything in their religion. Physical acts were used to portray spiritual truths. Baptism was already in use to symbolize a change of path. That is why John baptized people before these events. It was a symbolic baptism of readiness for a Messiah, not a baptism in his name. 
Peter's baptism in Jesus' name implies it is a symbol of a changed path as an individual trusts Jesus for spiritual cleansing and forgiveness. The spiritual baptism of repentance saves. The physical baptism is its physical representation. And for the Jewish person, there was no thought of separation. While the Apostle Paul will always be in favor of people being baptized, when he is writing to an audience of Gentiles and Jews mixed in Corinth, he says he's called to preach the gospel and doesn't mention baptism. It's still heavily symbolic, but it was less connected in the Gentiles' mind. What is missing here, though, from Peter's two steps is belief, something that Paul will stress in his writings So how could Peter forget belief? Two thoughts on this. Number one, this isn't his whole message, so he might well could have stressed belief as well. And the responders are called believers by Luke. But second, this crowd has very little about Jesus they need to believe without seeing. They witnessed his power. They witnessed his love. They witnessed his death. They witnessed at least the rumor of his resurrection. It's not distant from them all. They are participators. Okay. There are two witnesses to this gospel, the prophets and the disciples. There are two promises from God, forgiveness and the spirit. And there are two conditions, repentance and baptism. Peter concludes by pleading with the people to purge themselves from this generation of Messiah murderers to repent and to trust in Jesus. And 3,000 did. Oh, wait, we didn't read that yet. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amazing. We have 3,120 followers of Jesus in the first day of the last days. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Peter is faithful to Jesus' call to go disciple, baptize, and teach. What was his fancy message that brought 3,000 new people to the kingdom? It was a Jesus-centric message. That's not fancy, and that can be lost. Are we all about Jesus? And remember, there were the sets of two. Two witnesses to the gospel, the prophets and the disciples, two promises from God, Forgiveness in the Spirit and two conditions, repentance and baptism. Things get all screwed up when people start trimming away at these things. Like forgiveness without repentance, for example, or disciples but no prophets. This first group of followers were making a new community. One that was all about Jesus, for Jesus, and as like Jesus as possible. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, the early group of followers will experience a short honeymoon period.